Well, good morning. Once again, welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have joined us today, and we do trust that God uh, will speak to us in the name, the way that we need to hear uh, from him. I, I do want to draw our attention right quick um, to the song that we sang a little bit earlier. My wife and I had a discussion about it uh, last week, the new one uh, that we've been doing. Um, it was, the I think, the second song we did tonight, Hope of the Ages. Uh, there's a reason that we do that song. Like sometimes we, we add new songs because they're fun and they feel, they feel good and they've got good energy and, and the lyrics are good. But really the point is to bring you along with us and to create some energy in the sanctuary. I'll be honest with you about that. Um, and sometimes we, we sing songs that maybe the energy is just a little bit weird. It, it doesn't feel uh, big, congregational, and, and maybe feels like something that sometimes would be better with a choir than with uh, a band and, and the congregation singing. But sometimes the lyrics are such that I feel it's necessary for us to sing it. And this is one of those songs in Hope of the Ages that, that I don't want us to miss uh, because the lyrics are important. And, and I want us to sing it so that we get these things in our head. Because what, they, what the authors have done is really quite, quite genius. They've, they've taken all of these Old Testament references to Jesus. All these Old Testament, kind of what we're doing with the sermon series right now. But they've taken these Old Testament titles that are uh, officially for the Messiah. That, that them being applied to Jesus is a sign that Christ is the promised one of God. And in the chorus we sing, Hope of the Ages. Isaiah's great light, Abraham's offspring, blessing of Jacob and Judah's might, hope of the ages, David's true son, desire of nations, promised salvation, and God with us. I get chills just reading it because that song gives us an encapsulation of all that Christ is to us, all that God has promised us. And there's some pretty amazing things in that course. So as we sing that song, I realize that, that it may not be the most exciting Christmas jam that we do on a given Sunday morning, but there's such great truth in there that I don't want us to miss. So make sure we pay attention to that as we're singing that God might speak to our hearts. Well, let's go to the Lord and ask the Lord to speak to us as we turn our attention now to his word. <clears throat> Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, I thank you for this season and for all of the symbols that, that we have that, that are intended to draw our attention forward, to, to draw our attention to the coming of the Christ child. And yes, Lord, we realize that we've, he's come in the past, but, but Lord, may we always have an anticipation in our heart, remembering that Christ has come, but Christ is coming again. And Lord, may we continue to experience your coming in our hearts on a daily basis. May we re be reminded in the midst of all the, the trappings and the traveling and all of the, the different things that go along with the season. May we, may we not lose sight and may we, the, muddies not, the waters not be muddied, but may we be reminded very clearly of the goodness and grace of God to us through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. Lord, help us to not just see symbols, but to see signs Signs that point to your power and presence in our lives. And signs that you will continue to work and move in amazing ways. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, this week's sermon title is uh, Stars, Farms, and an Impossible Birth. And, and, and the reason for that is that I want for us this morning to focus on some of the distinct signs of Christmas. And one of the coolest things about the Christmas season to me is, is the way that Old Testament passages that, that were passed from generation to generation through the ages, through the children of Israel, from one generation to another. The, these promises and these sayings and these statements that they probably read through every year, just like we do, that, that they came to life in a moment. That things that God had promised, not just the outworking, but, but things that God had promised would take place to, to make clear what God was doing, that those things actually happened. A friend of mine and I were having a conversation uh, earlier this week about this very message, and, and we were talking about our upbringing in, in the same Baptist church in northern Indiana. And, and we, we almost were on the same wavelength as we were talking, and he stole the words from my mouth when he said, you know, one of the things that I do lament about our upbringing, there's a many great things that I loved about First Baptist Church of Elkhart, but one of the things that I lament about the Baptist tradition and my Baptistic upbringing is the way that we tend to marginalize the miraculous. The way that we tend to maybe not outright explain away these cosmological, supernatural things, but we don't really pay a lot of attention to them. And as a matter of fact, we make intentional efforts sometimes when we come to the scriptures to explain away the supernatural rather than to try to see it in our lives. And, and I, I really think that he's right. You know, I, I am grateful for, for the tradition that I came up in. I am grateful for my youth pastor. You've heard me talk about Ron Bouvier and Dwight Peterson and the way that they impressed upon us the, the centrality of the word of God and the importance of, of studying and knowing God's word in detail so that we can follow God appropriately. But, but it does seem in, in Christian traditions and circles that you tend to fall on one end of the spectrum or the other. And what I mean by that is that you are either, you know, God is going to speak to me through signs and wonders and too much education confuses things and, and muddies the water, or you go to the other side and you say signs and wonders, it, 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 it's not intellectual enough. We need to know what we know that we know about God. And, and I, it seems to me that, that it shouldn't be that way. I mean, honestly, if we're, if we're being real with one another, is that not the human nature, that we, we tend to gravitate towards the poles in all different things? We gravitate to the extremes? But it does seem to me that there's a place in the middle. There's got to be some place where, where the reality and the centrality of God's word and the desire to love God with all of our, our mind and to study and to know and to understand cultures and contexts and languages, that, 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 that's an exciting thing and an important part of the Christian experience. But at the same time, we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is our entire being. So there is a sense where, where our emotions are not to be put on a shelf. Our feelings are, 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 are things that are beyond what we can understand. That we don't have a right to marginalize those. And God is not limited by our understanding of his word. God can do whatever God wants to do. It's kind of one of the fringe benefits of being God. And I think... I believe that God is still speaking to us today. 
that God is still in the business as he started in Luke chapter 2 of pouring out visions and signs and wonders upon his people. And and the question that I often ask myself is, is, is it true? Am I so Am I so stuck in my intellect, in my own understanding, that I don't allow room for God to move and speak? And do I maybe sometimes miss it when God is sending me signs? I can tell you of one time when I did not miss the sign. And it's interesting because it relates to our relationship as church and pastor. Because the sign actually came to me sitting right there on that front row in December, actually December 4th of 2016. Does anyone know what happened on December 4th of 2016? Go ahead, Gene. December 4th of 2016 was the fateful day when you voted me in as the pastor of First Baptist Church. That was the day. And, and, and a year earlier, about 12 months prior to that, I, I, I was standing in a, a situation at, at Passion Worship Conference in, in Atlanta, and I was burned out at that season of my life. I was really frustrated with the church. I'd had situations where I was interviewing with different churches. I was not happy in my position where I was. There was tension in the church and in the relationship between me and and the senior pastor, Um, some because of me and some because of him, and and we've since worked that out. But I was not happy, and I wanted out. And I'd interviewed with several American Baptist churches, one not an hour from this place and another about an hour and a half north. And in a matter of 20 minutes, both of them called me, one telling me that I was too liberal and could not fit in their congregation, the other telling me I was too conservative and could not fit in their congregation. So within 20 minutes, I was told by two different American Baptist churches in Indiana, within an hour of one another, that I was both too conservative and too liberal. Which in hindsight is like, I'm actually in a pretty good place probably, biblically speaking. But I was frustrated. I was incredibly, I was not encouraged by the messaging I was getting that day. And to be completely honest, I wondered in that moment aloud to my wife, we had conversations, if this wasn't it. If maybe, if maybe just working in the church wasn't the thing for me anymore. Maybe I was just meant to do something else. So we had talked about that, and as we are standing in in the the big um, dome down in Atlanta, Passion, uh, Hillsong United gets up on the stage. Hillsong writes many of the songs that we do on Sunday mornings, and Hillsong is standing up there, and at the time they had a very popular song that I will confess to you, I hate. I still don't like it now. And the song was Oceans. The song was Oceans. And it was a very popular song at the time, and, and they're standing up there, and they're singing it, and I'm, I'm not singing it because it's a dumb song, and why are we doing this right now? And I'm burned out, and I'm frustrated, and so I'm standing there, arms crossed. And, and as I do, they, they came to the bridge, and the words to the bridge say this, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters, wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. My gosh, we are seven years removed, and it still makes me cry. So fast forward 11 months, still hate the song. 
But that, that night as we were singing the song, I melted into a puddle. And, and we finished the song, and I felt in that moment, I felt God saying to me, almost as clear as day, the Lord said to me, this year you will exit the season of storm and struggle as I lead you into new and unknown places to serve me. And I'm a puddle. I mean, you can imagine if I'm breaking up now all these years later, I was just, I was done. And I cried, but we finished that day and we moved on and I went back to my life at First Baptist St. Albans and back to my frustration and I forgot and moved on. Fast forward 11 months, we go through an incredibly long interview process with First Baptist Church. I can hear amens coming from the search committee that went through the process with me and, and vetted every possible way and go through the long interview process. And finally, we come to Sunday, December 4th, and I'm sitting right here with Robin on this front row, and the praise band gets up, and what song do they happen to sing that morning? Oceans. I had this great idea of getting up here. Someone had told me when we were back at the other end, hey, if you can't get up and do a backflip on the stage, I'm not voting for you. And so I had this great joke I was going to do where I was going to get up to the front of the stage and turn around like I was going to do a backflip. And I had this great idea, and the song starts playing, and they get to the chorus, and I am weeping. I was, I was a puddle. Those of you that were here that Sunday morning can, can confess and confirm that when I got up to the stage that morning to begin speaking, I was a hot, wet mess. It's true. And I was, I was, I was totally thrown off my game. I, had, I, I even remember saying I had this funny thing I was going to do, but I've got to be honest to you. In this, morning, in this moment this morning, I am overwhelmed. And as I stand here, I, I find myself receiving from the Lord the sign that he promised to me all these months ago. And the, the sign for me was the song. It was a clear sign to me that what God had said to me back in January was coming to pass on December 4th of 2016. Now, we can argue, and if you want to have the debate with me later, I will happily talk to you. I believe with all of my heart that that was a sign from God, that God was clearly speaking to me, and that God, in a way that I would understand and that I would clearly know it was God talking to me in that moment, that God was giving me a sign that he was confirming to me the promise that he had given me earlier in the year. I still hold on to that. I still hear that dumb song and cry when it's on the radio. Because God spoke to me and God gave me a sign and God has been true to his word to me. Because here we stand, ending year six together and beginning into year seven. God is faithful. God is still speaking. God is still moving and one of the great tragedies of our modern minds is how quick we are to dismiss spiritual realities. That anything that extends beyond what we can scientifically or empirically explain is called into question or flatly denied as being false. In a grand twist of irony, we continue to attempt to remove the need for faith from the faith. And even when it comes to the story of Christmas at times, I think 
We seek to turn the miracles of Christmas into just symbols of Christmas. But the truth is they are more. They are signs from God to to us. They connect our current realities and experiences to past promises. And they remind us that God is always faithful. God is always faithful. God is always faithful to fulfill every part of his word to us. So this morning I want to take a look a closer look at the origins of three of the signs of Christmas and their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus in the scripture. So we're buckle up, we're going to jump through some passages today. We're going to start right now in Luke chapter 1 verses 26 through 38. Luke 1:26. Luke 1.26 and following, it says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. <coughs> Excuse me. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Lord, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born in you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from the Lord will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So we see this promise that's going to be fulfilled. And the promise is this, that the Christ was to be born of a virgin. The Christ was to be born of a virgin. Only God could come up with something so incredible and outlandish. Because only God could make it happen. Only God could make it happen. Now I want to turn back again to where we see this promise taking place. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10. It says, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. It is not enough to try the patience of humans. Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So we see this promise. 
What's interesting to me is the context of the promise. We have King Ahaz, and God comes to Ahaz, and, and Ahaz is, is trying to discern what God would have him to do as the king of Israel. And, and Ahaz has his own plan all mapped out. Ahaz has, has worked out treaties with different kingdoms, different alignments with different nations. And, and, and in Ahaz's plan, there is a notable entry missing. There's a notable entity that has not been included in Ahaz's great plan to preserve his kingdom and the people of God. Well, what is that absence, you might ask? The absence is Ahaz has failed to include God in his plan at all. Ahaz never asks God what God wants. Ahaz doesn't invite God into the plan. And so that's the context. God comes to Ahaz and, and says, Ahaz, you want a sign that I'm here? You want a sign that I'm working with you? You tell me whatever sign you want. God makes Ahaz a deal he couldn't refuse. Can you imagine this? Like God, God sending his prophet to you, a known prophet, someone who has predicted the future and said something that is to come, that has happened, and this person comes to you and says, hey, Larry Lee, I want you to tell me what sign do you want? Any sign at all, what is something you've been worrying about or wondering in your life? And Larry, you tell me what sign you want the Lord to give you. Could you come up with a sign off the top of your head, Larry? And Larry like, Larry like a thousand birds in his yard and all the scat that goes with it. <laughs> you know what I'm going to guess? I'm going to guess that most of us were the, 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 the prophet to come to us and say, you tell me any sign you want. Larry was probably the wrong one because he's probably thought about this. But for most of the rest of us, if, if, if God were to come to us through a prophet and say, you tell me whatever sign, I know you're struggling with this thing in your life, what sign do you want from God Almighty to prove that God's got this in moving? Tell me what sign you want. I'm guessing that most of us would probably demure like, like Ahaz. Now, we wouldn't do it in the same way that Ahaz is doing it, because Ahaz is showing false humility. He's, oh, no, 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 no. I would never test God. But even if he was to test God, let's go for a second and say that he was willing to ask, what would you ask God? And if you're sitting there saying, oh, I know right away, you are a liar, because I've heard at the end of services, you all can't decide where you're going to lunch today. I means some of you couples will fight in your car pulling out of the church because one asks, where are we going for lunch today? And someone else is going to say, I don't know. So someone's going to make a choice and the other person's going to be like, that's not where I want to go. This isn't going to lunch. This is a sign, a cosmological sign, a supernatural sign from God. You can pick whatever you want. And Ahaz is like, uh, pass. <laughs> pass. I, I actually understand that. It's a difficult question. So God's like, fine, fine. Your sign would have probably been insufficient and dumb anyways. Let me give you a sign, Ahaz. Here's the sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth. You can't get much bigger than that. Like all week I've thought about it. If you were to try to think of a clearer sign, what would it be? And I can't think of one. That's a pretty clear sign. You know why? Because virgins don't give birth. Like actual for real virgins, not people that just say they're virgins. Like people that have not been sexually active do not have children. That, that's the reality of things. 
So if a virgin were to conceive and give birth, there is only one possibility. God has done something. God has moved in an amazing, recognizable way. These verses carry both a now, I want to be honest about this, these verses in Isaiah carry both a now and a later component to them. Every prophecy that we will read this morning has an immediate fulfillment, but also a fulfillment that clearly takes place later. Now what's interesting is in the context of Ahaz, this was not a positive sign. If you read through it and study what happens, the virgin conceiving and giving birth, that child is a ticking time bomb. Because once that child is born, it's the countdown to the end of, of Ahaz's kingdom, to the Assyrian destruction and deportment. It's a, it's a curse. Now, I think that's interesting because almost every promise of God in the Old Testament that points to the promise of Christmas is couched in a curse. God taking what was meant for evil and making it the ultimate good. I think that's amazing. So there was a, there was a then component, but there was also a, a later component that was going to come. Now people want to argue back and forth about, well, what does it mean by the word virgin? If we look back, sometimes the word virgin could mean just the young lady in the household. Not this word. The word that is used here, you would have to do some serious intellectual gymnastics to get to the point where you explain this away as anything other than someone who has been sexually abstinent. That is what this word is. All the time, every time. This is a, a very distinct word, and, and the, the person here has not been sexually active. In terms of a recognizable sign, this one's hard to beat. God gives it to Ahaz. Then we come to the Luke passage that we just read. And Luke, the historian and doctor, I, that is important for us this morning. That Luke is a, a world-renowned, at this point, the, the works of Luke in the writings of Bible for their detail are recognized as historians as being beyond their time. Luke was a historian and Luke was a doctor. Who better to recount the reality of a virgin birth than a trusted historian and a doctor. Right? And, and what does Luke lead into? How does, how does Luke lead into this, this interaction with Mary? Well, he says, in the sixth month Elizabeth's pregnancy, we see another unlikely pregnancy that, that Gabriel came down to Nazareth and the town of Galilee. In verse 27, it says, to a virgin to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. Note that twice in the passage in Luke, before we ever hear Mary's name, twice she is identified as a virgin. It is the definitive marker of who and what Mary was at the beginning of this story. Luke is making it very plain. And, and, and if that wasn't enough, Mary herself points out the reality. How can this be? Since I'm a virgin, virgins don't give birth. This is not possible. This is a key element of the Christmas story. It is not just a detail that we can gloss over or ignore. Hear me, the virgin birth is essential to the story of Christmas. It is something we should hold on to. It is, it is key enough that in the creeds, we hold that Christ was 
born of a virgin. It's a key doctrine. Now the angel's proclamation to Mary has two points. That Mary is favored by God. And two, that God's favor will result in her, a virgin, giving birth to a son who is to be the savior of the world. And Mary asks the question that resounds through the ages, how? I'm, I'm a virgin. Verse 37, the angel tells her how. No word from God will ever fail. How? How is this possible? How is this going to happen? Because God said it's going to happen. And if God has said, God will be involved and God will bring it to fulfillment. No word from God will ever fail. As impossible as it may seem, even in our own lives, if God has said he would do something in his word, we can bank on it. We can trust that that will happen. And I think that that is part of the importance of the virgin birth. If God can bring about a birth from a virgin, what can God not do? What can not God not do? The rules don't apply to God. The systems and structures of this world do not stand in God's way. God says and God things happen, things happen. Right, we can go back to creation itself, and God said, let there be life. The light, that there is power in the word of God. Do you believe that? I, I do. It's why I've dedicated my life to studying. It's why we, it's so important to me that when we come here, that our sermon time not be just a, a quick snippet and a quick story and we get on our way. It's why we go in depth, because I believe that these are the very words of life. That these are promises that apply to our lives and these are signs that, that, that will guide us on the road as we seek the Lord with our lives. That these words are the key to life and godliness. And that if it says it in this book, that it's important that we hide it in our hearts. Because these words hold the key to life and life everlasting. And if God has said it, we can trust it. It may not feel like it in the moment. It may, we may wait for a long time and, and we may continue to look forward. I mean, think about it. There, there were hundreds of years between the prophecy of Isaiah to Ahaz and the, the fulfillment in Mary. But God did what God said God would do. Christmas reminds us both early and often that God will do what God has said. Christ was to be born of a virgin. But then we see a second sign. The second sign is, is where the Christ was to be born. And the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. <clears throat> Turn over a quick page here in Luke, and let's look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke 2, 1 through 7. It says this, In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah to Bethlehem 
the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them in the inn. Now flip back just a few pages to the book of Matthew. To the book of Matthew. Matthew 2, verses 3 through 6. Says this, when King Herod this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now let's flip one more time, back just a few pages to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Here we find the origin of this prophecy, this sign that was to come. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. We see this prophecy that a mighty ruler, a mighty king, would come out of the backwater farm community of Bethlehem. And make no mistake, Bethlehem was a backwater farm community. It's not a place that you would go to unless you had a reason to go there. We see this prophecy. Bethlehem, as we look historically in the Bible, Bethlehem was the town of David's humble origins. Bethlehem was the town where when, when they, God was looking for a king to replace Saul, he went to the town of Bethlehem and, and he, found, he found Jesse and they called in the sons, right? And, and they, they, they looked through all of the sons to pick this king to come. And, and as they looked through all the sons, God's like, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. Is this it? Jesse's like, hey, well, the, the, the pup is out in the fields. And so they have to send to the fields to bring David in. The town of Bethlehem, it was a shepherding community. Even in the time of Jesus, it was still a shepherding community. Today, it is still a shepherding community. It's a rural area. Now, this is interesting to me because when you and I think of this, we think of Bethlehem as the city of David. Bethlehem is not the city of David. You know what the city of David is? Jerusalem is the city of David. You know why Jerusalem is the city of David? Because rulers generally didn't associate themselves with the point of their humble, lowly origins, but the point of their highest ascent. So David is associated with the city of Jerusalem, not the city of Bethlehem. Not, and it's, if you look in the Bible, it's not even referred to as the city of Bethlehem. It's the town of Bethlehem. I mean, Bethlehem is like the Seymour of Bible times. It's a Jesus was born in a small town. He's just like us. 
So we have, we have this place of, of lowliness. Actually, it, it brought to mind a, a story, and, and a friend of mine were talking about this earlier. When I say the name Abraham Lincoln, what city comes to mind? Someone tell me. Springfield? Anybody else? Washington, D.C.? Maybe Gettysburg? You know what doesn't come to any of our minds? Lincoln City, Indiana, which is interesting because it's named after Abraham Lincoln. This is where he was born. Do you know that? Abraham Lincoln, born in Indiana. No one cares. No one cares. We care about D.C. We care about Gettysburg. We care about the big things, except for like the one of us that hid it in the room. So I want to give credit. We don't think about the, the smallness of Abraham Lincoln. We think about the grandeur. We don't think about the smallness of David. We think about the grandeur. We think about the height of his power, not the humble beginnings in southern Indiana. Same is true with David. God is making something very clear, though, with this new king that would be born. God is making clear that what would happen would be by his power alone. That the ascent of this son of David, the ascent of this king to come, was not going to become... Not going to come about because of dynastic power or integrity, but it was going to come about because of the work of God. That God himself would bring this about. Scholars note, there is strong evidence that Micah expects a supernatural figure in keeping with the expectation of Isaiah. Where the future king is called God. Micah tells us that this king's origins would be from old, from ancient times. This phrase literally translates his goings forth. It indicates that this child to come has been active in the past. That this king to be born would have already done things and and would be eternally existent. In the gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we see that, that this is Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Only in Christ does this prophecy find fulfillment, that in the backwaters of Bethlehem, a new king was born whose origins were from old. But note that It was God moving that got Joseph and Mary there in the first place. Now Caesar was by no means a man of God. But Caesar was the means God used to bring about his plan. Luke 2, 1 through 3, we see that Caesar issues a decree that a tax, that a census is to be taken of all of the land. Caesar was also almost un- certainly unconcerned with the eternal plans of God when he decided to order a census. You know what Caesar was concerned with? Caesar was concerned with putting coin in his pocket. Caesar wanted to make sure his tax base was correct, that he was bringing in his just desserts and getting what he deserved. But God used the actions of this heathen pagan man to put pieces in place to bring about his plan. Why do I say that? Because there is no way that Joseph and Mary would have made the trip to Bethlehem 
when she was eight to nine months pregnant. No man in the world in the last months of pregnancy says, hey, honey, let's get in the car and take a long trip. No, I promise you that when, women, when you were pregnant, your husband didn't want to be in the car with you any more than you wanted to be in the car yourself. Promise. And any spouses in the room that would say, hey, traveling with a pregnant person is, is, is difficult. It's un- women want to say it's uncomfortable riding in the car when you're very, very pregnant. Of course it is. Now, let, let's put this into context. Joseph and Mary didn't jump into the family Buick to head from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Now, we like the pictures that we have of the nativity, right? And in the pictures, we've got poor Joseph walking at the front of a donkey and Mary riding on the donkey as they made their way into Bethlehem. The pictures have lied to you. Mary and Joseph almost certainly had no donkey. No one was riding. Donkeys were beasts of burden that were only for rich people and carpenters were not rich. That's why they have to stay in, in someone's living room for all intents and purposes or a barn or whichever way we want to go to. We can, we can see that they have no accommodations. It, it just wasn't that there was no place for them in the inn. There was no place in anyone's house. And so they took what they could get. They, they traveled. Mary is nine months pregnant. They traveled 90 miles, most of it uphill to go from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Traveling likely eight hours a day on foot while she was nine months pregnant. No one makes that decision. No one decides it's time to go home for the holidays when they're eight months, three weeks, and a half pregnant. And we know that she was that far along because the Bible says they get there and she has the baby almost immediately. I mean, even today, we don't travel. I just did a wedding just a couple weeks ago, just one week ago, and, and family members of the bride didn't make the trip because the bride's sister-in-law is extremely pregnant. Medical science wasn't great then, I get it. But even then, the doctors would not have recommended the trip. But here we have Mary and Joseph in the perfect place at the perfect time For the baby of the virgin to be born in the appropriate town. Coincidence? I think not. Too many things had to move in a certain way for Mary and Joseph, the virgin who is to give birth, to be in that place at that time. I call that divine providence. The Bible calls it a sign. The Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. We see one more sign. The birth of the Christ was to be revealed by a star. Look with me in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. See, the bright star that rose that night, that that shone in the sky for 
probably months and maybe even a couple of years afterwards was not just some random cosmological happening that just happened to burst on the scene. It was something that was cyclical that had maybe even happened before. But it was something that gave a clear sign to the Magi, these wise men, these academics and mystics. It was something that was so clear that when they saw the sign and and they saw the star come into the sky, they knew that there was to be someone that was born king of the Jews And that that star was telling them that that was the case. Again, God has a habit of turning the curses of the enemy into blessings for his people. It was true with Eve. It was true with Ahaz. And it's true now with the star. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. Verses 15 and following, it says this. Then Balaam smoke, spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor. The prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. So Balaam was a prophet for prophet in the Old Testament. If we go back, we see that that the king of Moab had sent for the prophet Balaam that he would come and his specific task was, hey, I want you to come and curse this people Israel that has, that has come into the land and is overtaking all these other cities. I want you to come. They, they say their God is working for them and I want you to call down a curse upon them that their God might be limited. And, and apparently he had been somewhat successful in the land and doing this in the past because they're seeking him out and willing to pay the price. And they're insistent that he needs to come. Now it's, it's important for us to understand that Balaam was not just a latent prophet of God that happened to be in the land of Canaan. He was a pagan man. He, he was a man that was out to, to, use, to use mystical arts and powers for his profit, for his own gain, to make money. He had no concern about who he was hurting or who he was helping as long as he was helping himself. It's it's noteworthy that here once again, God uses a self-centered pagan prophet to proclaim his eternal truth to the world and to accomplish his purposes. He did it with Caesar, and here he's doing it with Balaam. It's an interesting thought that God is not limited by who we are, what we've done, or where we're from. If God can use Balaam, if God can use Caesar, if God can use the backwater town of Bethlehem to announce his coming, he can use us. 
God uses over and over throughout the Christmas story people that are the least of these, those that seem the most, the, the least likely, and God brings them into his plan and uses them for his purposes. And to me, that is a reminder that I don't want us to miss, that the signs of Christmas and the, and the, the way things happen remind us that we are a part of God's story. That we've been invited by, through Christmas, through the coming of the Christ, and by grace through faith, we have been invited to what God is doing on the earth. So the king sends to Balaam, and God, in his mercy, warns Balaam not to go. God tells Balaam, you will not be able to curse these people, for they are my people, and I am going to bless them. They are blessed, is that what the text actually says. But the offer is too good to refuse, and so Balaam ignores it, and there's a, a great many things that happen, including a talking donkey and an angel with a sword. It's an amazing story. You can go back and read it later. <coughs> but Balaam goes to, to do the, the cursing, but Balaam warns the king that he can't say anything that God does not command. And as a result, three times, Balaam gets up to curse the people of Israel, and he blesses them without qualification. And following these blessings, for good measure, Balaam gives this fourth message that we've just re read. This is the climax of Balaam's prophetic blessing. And it's the blessing of the star and the scepter. He says in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Now, there's something important for us to understand about the people of Israel at this time as it relates to a king. Do you know what's important about the people of Israel at the time of this prophecy? They had never had a king. They had never had a ruler. The concept of a king was totally foreign to the people of Israel at this time. Other nations had kings, and eventually the people of Israel would ask for them. But at this point, they have no king. They have no ruler. They have judges appointed by God, and they live under a theocracy. It's strange because in the context here, the, the prophet Balaam looks ahead and says, You will have a king. There will be one that will rise as a king. And he's going to do these amazing things, a star that will rise. And it's not just a star will rise in the heavens, but the star would be born into the world. There will be a star and a scepter. To, to, to us, stars are more or less just pretty, pretty things that give light and shine in the sky. But to the ancient Near East, they were meaningful and useful. And they served three primary purposes. First, they illuminated the universe. That's helpful. Two, they helped mark time. Three, they provided direction. And this star coming out of Jacob would illuminate the hearts and minds of the world and lead them to life at just the right time. A scepter was a royal symbol of power and authority. It was the symbol that signaled who was leading the people, particularly when rendering judgment. But interesting truth about a scepter. A scepter could only be held in the absence of a sword. It was to be held in the right hand, the same hand that would hold the sword. A scepter is a sign of peace. 
A scepter is a sign that the battle is already over, that leadership is already taking place. Balaam prophesies that a king would come who would lead the people in power, but also in peace. Well, you may ask me then, well, what about all of this stuff about crushing skulls and the destruction of foreheads and the conquering of enemies? Well, you know what's interesting about all of the people that are mentioned in this prophecy? They represent the borders of Israel. So within the prophecy here, what God is saying is that the borders of my nation, Israel, will be destroyed. There will be no borders because there will be no enemies. There will be peace and there will be power. The full prophecy foretells the elimination of Israel's borders. And the prophecy communicates that peace will come and all people will be welcomed to seek the king. Which is what's interesting about the coming of the Magi. That it's not Israeli scholars, it's not Hebrew scholars that are seeking this newborn king. They know that he's to be born in Israel, in Bethlehem. But who is it that's seeking them but wise men from afar? Foreigners coming to find the new king, the star in the scepter. The Magi saw something in the star and had the sense and courage to follow where the light was leading. The star is a reminder to us of the invitation of God to all the peoples of the world. That the light of God would shine into all the world and that those who would see the signs would seek the Savior and find salvation. Wise men and women through the ages have always sought the Christ. And this very day, wise men and women will continue to search the scriptures to see the signs and seek the one promised of God. You see, the signs of Christmas are more than symbols. The signs are confirmation that Jesus is the Christ. The virgin birth is not just a cool miracle. It's the fulfillment of a promise of God. Being born in the backwater small town of Bethlehem is not just a happenstance, a, a reality of, of political meanderings and movements, but it is the manifestation of the coming of the eternal one. And the star shining in heaven, shining the light of God is a reminder that all who would seek him may seek the Son of God, find him, and be saved. See, the signs of Christmas aren't just symbols. They are signs that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one of God, and that the baby in the manger is the eternal king of the universe. God with us, come to set people free. Father God, I thank you so much for these signs of Christmas the signs of your love, the signs of your greatness and your power. God, may we see them this day and every day, and may we continue to seek you. God, may we understand that you are continually giving us signs and wonders, that you continue to communicate with us through your power and presence in the world. May we see you. May we be open to the signs. May we hear your voice and seek your face and serve you with all of our hearts, souls, and minds. God, this Christmas, help us to seek the Savior, to find the baby in the manger, and to be encouraged. In Jesus' name.